As of 2019, only 3% of those in psychology workforce are Black. According to the American Psychological Association, Black people are reported to experience mental health issues in similar rates as other races. Our disparities in levels of care and resources are increasingly higher, meaning the mental health and psychological field doesn't have enough representation and options for viable care for people of color. Representation matters. We are in need of more black male and female therapists, but I am excited for the work and growth in our generation and generations to come. As you know, I have a soft spot for black men tapping into their emotions and embracing healing. I believe they more so have not been given the freedom and space to feel, to express, and to acknowledge the trauma and hurt that lies within their bodies. We need you, black men. We need and want you whole. Today's guest, Charles Robinson Sneed, licensed professional counselor of mental health, is a black male therapist, and I can't wait to dive into his story and the work he is doing in his community. This is inspired by the Brown Brothers. Black boy, black man, it is a privilege to share your stories, your experiences. Be joyous to challenge the truths you've adopted from American society about who you are. Black boy, black men, Actively, openly, willingly, and fully participate in your tears, your laughter, your healing, and your road to becoming whole. This Around the Way girl wants to chat with you. She's discovering new information in this world that surrounds her, tapping into her inner power, her sexuality, and taking ownership of her insecurities. She discovered she had to unlearn some things. Come and enjoy her moments of reflection, re-education, redefinition, and evolution. Kick back, sip some wine, take a drive, whatever your vibe. Join me, your host, Shea Sana, with She Discovered Podcast. So stay tuned. You might learn some things. All right, everyone, thank you for coming back to She Discovered Podcast. I have a special guest with me today. Charles, I'm very excited to have you with this conversation that we're going to have today about Black men and therapy. So thank you for making the time out to be on She Discovered to share your work and your story. Thank you for having me, Shay. I thoroughly appreciate it, and I'm definitely excited to, to get into the convo for sure. Of course, of course. I I really wanted to do this topic because I really have a soft spot for Black men and emotions because I've seen the detriment in our community with Black men not being able to be categorized as emotional, right? Mm-hmm. And when we think about it, men or women, the term emotional always has a negative connotation to sure. it, right? Even for myself, I consider myself to be emotional, but a friend told me, they're like, don't categorize it like that. Just say that you're a very emotionally aware, emotionally in tune person. Because yeah. yeah, I'm connected. Because a lot of people, when they say emotional, it seems like you have uh, no emotional intelligence. Uh, you let your emotions run you. And I understand that's a part of it as well. But for someone that is just tapped into their emotions and is not afraid to express it, it's usually looked down upon because it's connected to the idea of vulnerability. And yeah. I feel like Black men 
men haven't been given this from the beginning of time. Like I feel black men have not been given the space to be vulnerable, you know? So for me, it's really a soft spot. I've had an episode in the past where I spoke to this man about tapping into his emotions, but now I want to switch it over to black men in therapy because we definitely see the rise of women in therapy, right? If we go further back, black people never talked about therapy, right? It was, it was seen as a, as a taboo. So the fact that now men, I I believe they're slowly starting to, you know, be okay with the idea of going to therapy. But I I just think it's phenomenal that a person such as yourself is actually a black male therapist. We are very minimal in the uh, realm of psychology, you know, and therapy and counseling. So I just appreciate you and for the work you do. So I kind of want to start off with who and or what inspired you to be a therapist? That's a great question. And I love that question because it's a, there's a lot of layers to that, you know, right. with the response. That's not just a, I can't shoot you with a, a quick one liner. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think I have to start at just like who I knew I was as a kid. And then I'll just build from there. Like who I knew I was as a kid, I was always analytical. I just always was super inquisitive. I had to know the why of the why. I had to understand, like you couldn't just tell me something and I'd be perfectly fine with it without an understanding. I had to understand. And I think that that characteristic of me in the environment that I grew up in was mishandled because it was, I wasn't deemed inquisitive or analytic. Those are terms that I learned as I got older and, you know, was exposed to different language. As a kid, I was deemed to be um, nosy or um, disrespectful because I was asking questions to adults. And where I'm from, you know, the country of Delaware and Mm -hmm. Sussex County with a very traditional background, you don't question an adult. You know what I mean? Um, You were seen as disobedient as well. Absolutely. 100%. Even in school, you know, if the teacher says something, you just go with what the teacher said. That was never something that 100%, you know, flew. And anybody who knows me, I'm not sure anybody from Delaware or where I'm from in Delaware is going to listen to this podcast, but they know I was always the one and I I always got in trouble. I always got in trouble for many different things, but I, you know, you could just, you just couldn't tell me something. And, you know, I just be okay with it. I was definitely like the great debater. Like I wanted to understand <laughs> for sure. Like, you know, you got to give me the facts. And I want to know where you got your facts from. Um, I was always just that, that individual. Like I was always interested in, you know, not just what you thought, but why you thought it, you know what I mean? So like, that's kind of like just um, the core nature of my being as a characteristic, just being analytical, being inquisitive, loving the art of questioning when it came to careers or things of that sort you know, in grade school, like, oh, what do you want to be when you get older? Nothing ever interested me. I never knew what a therapist or a psychologist was, you know, because okay. it was never presented to me as an option. Grade school was like police officer, you know, doctor, doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, lawyer, teacher, you know, it was never counselor, therapist, social worker, anything like that. When I got older and I was getting into, you know, that, another conversation for another, for another day is how much trouble I used to get myself into. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, that's another conversation for another day. But I was in high school at this point and I had no direction at that point, you know, developing from that child in elementary school, not being not being interested in any of the careers that was being presented to me. But knowing that I loved understanding things, that being 
being kind of, you know, mishandled throughout the course of my life. Um, as I got into high school at that point, I had completely straight off. I had no interest in school. I had no interest in, you know, wanting to go to college or anything like that. I had already I had already resolved at that point that what I was going to do after high school, if I finished high school, was I was going to go back to my neighborhood and hang out with everybody else and do what they were doing as far as drugs, having kids, whatever the case may be. That's just the life that I saw. So that's the life that I knew. It wasn't until one, I saw my sister graduate. She, she, my, my sister's three years older than me. Mm-hmm. I saw her graduate high school and then go to college, which was a phenomenon in my neighborhood. Like nobody was doing that. When I saw her do it and we lived in the same household, I was like, oh, possible. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's now as now as possibility because some not just somebody in my neighborhood did it but somebody in my house did that <laughs> and um I, I i started to see the possibilities i was still getting in too much trouble in school to like be a part of any like collegiate uh academic programming but right. i got into some crazy trouble in my 10th grade year i got sent to the guidance council's office which absolutely at that point i was 100 perfectly fine with because i already knew who my guidance council was they were given to us by the you know the letter of our last name and so my guidance council was one of the football coaches at the school i knew going to him honestly was an easy way out so when i got there he was not available so i got rerouted rerouted to another guidance counselor which i did not want to go to this one particular guidance counselor for a few reasons she is to this day she's she's still alive so she is my my mom's godmother okay and she we attended the same church so i will oh, you, you you ain't getting off scot-free now <laughs> when i got to her office because my original guidance counselor was not available she was like close the door i said watch it day. So I closed the door and she just really, it wasn't, it wasn't the traditional disciplinary that I was used to. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to tell your mom or anything like that. She was like, uh, these, these are the exact words she said to me. And I might be paraphrasing a little bit. Um, she was like, do you understand and realize what you're doing? And I was like, no, ma'am. She was like, um, you're, you're too busy leading people in their own direction that you're not even paying attention enough that you have influence. Mm. And if you do the right things, you'll lead people in a different direction. And I was like, man, ain't nobody ever believed in me like that before. You know what I'm saying? Like nobody has ever spoken those words to me like that before to kind of get me to think about things from a different perspective. What I'm hearing is like, because some people would take it and be like, it's not my responsibility. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't control what other people do. Mm -hmm. But the way you computed it was that if you're saying that I have influence Mm -hmm. and that I have to be aware of what I do because it could lead people astray then you're saying that there's some of importance to yeah, for sure wow. okay i see and i also like i later learned that that's affirmation and and i think the reason why it peaked me at that point and why it was so like it stuck with me and really changed the trajectory of where i was going at that point was because prior to that i had not been affirmed okay i i grew up and you know this is just a little bit of a backstory you know i mm-hmm. kind of skipped some pages there but i grew up in a very um verbally abusive uh household and so i was always told all of the negative things about myself right all of the bad things about myself i was anything you can think of you know as far as what can be spoken negatively to a young black boy was said to me right so i had i had this i had these negative core beliefs about myself nobody had ever affirmed me nobody ever believed anything positive about me at least that i knew of up until that point when that conversation was had it really kind of peaked something in me and it woke something up in me that had me thinking differently about myself and even the possibilities of something being different about myself part of the reason why that conversation is so powerful but the other part of it is 
because she was also the one that was in charge of these academic programming. So she okay. then got me involved in um, different programming. She got me involved in, oh, you're interested in how people think, right? She, these are things that she pulled out of me. Like you're interested in mm -hmm. how people think, you're interested in, you know, these different things. Let's get you in this uh, psychology course because then my high school started offering psychology. So she mm -hmm. got me in psychology course and then they, I think my soft, I think my junior year she got me in the AP psychology course which again was completely out of my league because I had right. never taken AP courses up until that point I ain't qualified I was getting F's and D's like what <laughs> like, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm once I got exposed to psychology I'm like oh there's like a whole like a whole science behind how people think you know there's a whole science behind it you know if I can kind of wrap it up from there how I became a therapist was that conversation that relationship being built with her as an individual her helping me out to get on a path that kind of opened my mind to that there is a whole science behind how people think and how, you know, how people process their emotions and their behaviors and things of that sort. And then from there, I didn't qualify for most colleges at that point because my GPA was trash, if we're going to be honest. Right. But, she, you know, she helped me to really uh, start pulling it together. You know, she held me accountable and I started just doing better in school because I've been considered college as an option. And so from there, we, we worked it out. We were able to get an opportunity at um, Delaware State University, which is where I went for undergrad studying psychology and that's when I learned about you know through that relationship with her name is Miss Sessoms so through I call her my mom so through that relationship with my mom Sessoms and then you know getting into the psychology at Dell State I made myself a promise when I got to Dell State that I was going to do things completely different I wasn't going to relive the, the high school experience when I got there I hit the ground running and I got involved in everything psychology possible I built relationships in the department and that's when I learned about therapy wow that's that's a beautiful story because one moment and I believe it was fate that you didn't get your typical counselor, right? And mm -hmm. that you ended with your godmother and just with one phrase, basically what you were craving internally just mm -hmm. catapulted now your life's journey into learning about psychology and counseling and therapy. So you're telling me from that moment on, you mm -hmm. knew you wanted to deal with people? Yeah, because I just knew I knew it was the, like it was the natural part of me that was always interested in in people. And I think it started when I like like I, like I said, when I was a kid, I was always like, you know, inquisitive and, you know, just analytical, like always just questioning everything and wanting to understand everything. It then turned from just that being a natural characteristic of me, but then me starting to try to really understand myself and like, why are these things happening to me? It was like a self-focus, right? Like, why are these things happening to me? Like, why am I being, why are these things being said to me? Why do people think this about me? So it became like a self-focus. And then over the course of time, I started paying attention to other people. And then it became like more of a community focus. Like, why are these people behaving this way like why do these people think these things okay so then it was like oh it's not just me <laughs> people you know what i'm saying like this is this is humanity at this point like everybody got you know a, a way of thinking a way yeah. of feeling a way of doing things that just had me questioning and so that when i got when i knew that and then when i was like oh psychology never heard of it boom like there's a whole science behind it it, it just really um opened my mind up and honestly like it had me kind of going back and forth between the courses of my life from childhood to adulthood because as i got older i was like dang i used to always wonder like is there something wrong with my little brother um because i remember going to doctors 
frequently from my little brother being told about ADHD. All we knew was that it was the acronym ADHD. None of us right. ever knew, you know, that, that it had a whole name. Mm-hmm. You know, we, and we knew that my little brother was taking pills. And we knew that when he took the pills, he was like a zombie. We just knew these things because this was our experience with him at this point. But I never knew that there was a psychologist he saw. You know, I never knew that, you know, it was somebody that, or psychiatrist rather that he saw. I never knew that it was a whole, like a doctor specifically, you know, for his mental health mm-hmm. or whatever. Again, these are not words that we knew of or used. We just kind of were kids going along, doing whatever our mom told us to, to do. You know, as I got older, it just kind of had me going back at different phases of my life and just kind of thinking things through. And when I saw how the medications impacted my little brother, that also became, I almost felt responsible for other young kids, young Black kids, um, to be in the space as a Black male therapist and now being in the space, developing myself as a Black psychologist, Black male psychologist, to be in the spaces to provide services to young Black and brown children um, to provide them their adequate care, to make sure that they're getting accurate diagnoses, to make sure that they're not being over-diagnosed or under-diagnosed, making sure that they're not being over-medicated or under-medicated, you know, making sure that their parents and their families and whoever their caretakers are have the um, the information and the education behind whatever their treatment course may be, having them heavily involved as much as possible. But I think that that's necessary and that's not something that was the case for my family or for, you know, people in my community. Thank you for tuning into the episode thus far. I want to remind you that She Discovered also has episodes on our YouTube channel, She Discovered Podcast the Extension. As you enjoy audio episodes, tune in for further discussions on topics like spirituality, dating, sexuality, and entrepreneurship. And don't forget to click that subscribe button and notification bell to be updated on new released episodes. Finally, if you'd like to donate to the production of this podcast, please check out the link in the show notes. Thank you for being a part of my discoveries and enjoy the rest of the show. While you were getting your education and now reflecting back on your childhood, like you said, the emotional uh, and verbal abuse that you received while you were learning the science behind psychology and therapy, did you now see it fit to go into therapy yourself? Like oh, to have sure. your own therapist? 100%. And how, how was that like going through therapy yourself while learning to be a therapist? 100%. It's a journey. You know what I mean? It is 100% a journey. Actually, when I was getting my master's, um, I got my bachelor's from Dell State and I earned my master's from Eastern University in Pennsylvania. And it's a small, private, uh, white Christian college, really dainty. Um, that's why I earned my master's. And while we were in the program, they were adamant. It wasn't a requirement of the program, but they were very adamant about encouraging us to get in therapy ourselves because the integrity behind it is, which is why I took it up, but the integrity behind it is, at, you know, when you think about who you are as a therapist in context, you're literally sitting there, of course, as a professional, but your expectation essentially is for people to come in and, and get to the point to where they trust you to bear all with you. Yes. The the gall, you know what I mean? To, to expect that from somebody and not do it yourself. You know what I mean? Mm. When they were encouraging us to do so, I basically, I went and got myself into therapy. Um, unfortunately, I won't say unfortunately, because I don't want to say unfortunately. I'll just say the trajectory for me was in all contexts. I was in Delaware. At that point, there was not a wealth of Black male therapists. And then when you when you get into all of the, the details that require for you to find your therapist, there's a lot of details to it. A lot. What it, 
what is it that you're experiencing that you're even seeking help for? Because certain people might not specialize in it. There may be a black therapist out there, but what if they don't specialize in that? Insurance. What if they don't accept your insurance? It's not a good match. You know what I mean? So there are so many different things that play a part in you finding a therapist that could kind of put like make your selection pool a lot smaller. So for me, my pool was like non-existent. Most of the black male therapists that were licensed in Delaware at that time were substance and substance abuse therapists. It, it didn't line up with me. So I actually um, at that point just started searching and seeking um christian uh, licensed christian mental health therapist um because i'm a believer as well were um, you not finding black female therapists i was but i always wanted to work with the man i felt like that was most necessary for me i did not have my father growing up my stepfather honestly was the provider you know what i mean like he he kind of stood that traditional world as a man as a provider but mm -hmm. as far as like an actual father-son relationship that was right. not i felt like at that time i just needed to work with the man so i had uh started working with this um older white gentleman he's a believer um and he was very helpful for what we were trying to work on at that time but he and i like i think after maybe six months we kind of reached i think where we were able to go to a degree so i do think that race served as a barrier to a degree as well after that i did start working with a black woman she and i were doing some work and i feel like we had also reached our peak of where we were able to go what it boiled down to for me and i think this is the really really the importance in like knowing what you're looking for and what your needs are you know right. what I mean? I knew that I wanted to work with an older black male who was also a believer. And that ain't easy to find. That's very specific. You feel me? You feel me? Because for, for me, it's not only the wisdom of the field of psychology and mental health, but it's also the wisdom of the word. You know what I'm saying? And your lived experience all in one person that I was seeking because of like identity is a big part of it, you know, along with your mental and emotional health and well-being, you know, all of that was super important for me. So after I've done the work with these two therapists where I felt like we reached where we were going to, the, the peak of where we were able to make it, I then just kind of leaned on, just kind of leaned on my relationship with my pastor. Now, I don't recommend, okay. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about it. Come on, because I don't recommend put. I don't recommend everybody putting the responsibility of your mental and emotional health and well-being on your pastor. I say that, and to an aside, I'll say that my relationship with my pastor is a completely unique dynamic. My pastor is my father figure. Like we have more of a father-son relationship than anything. So he's also like my mentor, my coach. You know, he's not my therapist, but we we have a we have a different relationship. It's still a beautiful dynamic because as I go back to your the person that ignited your love for diving deeper into understanding people and going into therapy was your godmother mother figure mm -hmm. and then as you went to therapy and learned more and were able to specify you know what this is exactly what I need because I think a lot of us sometimes feels lo feel lost because we can't even identify exactly what we need and then now further you're like okay I did that and now your pastor, although that is not the go-to, you were able to find a spiritual, uh, right. racial connection on top of the father figure. And if yeah. we're going back to your childhood, like you said, it served as its own therapy for you. Because sure. a lot of the times when we're dealing with childhood trauma and we have, you know, very strained relationship with our parental figures, sometimes the craving 
that we need is for a healthy version of parental figures. Now, don't get me wrong. There are certain things that we need to address with those different traumas, right? Like the emotional abuse or whatever. But the fact that you were able to receive it in that sense, because I tell people I I've never been to therapy officially, but I have certain friends that they tap into counseling. They're not like licensed practitioners, but the work that they've done in themselves and the fact that they've opened a space for me to be comfortable and be vulnerable and share my feelings that has served as therapy for me. You know what I mean? So I, I mean, we're going to get into the faith aspect with, with therapy, but I would say too, sometimes when we're still in the search for a therapist, like you said, because we got to hone in on insurance and the section of um, therapy that they provide. If there is a community that you have a safe and healthy community that can still serve as a purpose in the meantime, while you're looking for a professional with, with that said, and I like when you mentioned your brother, because a lot of times in our community, we fail to know the difference between mental health versus mental illness. So how would you define mental health and mental illness? You know, to kind of add another dynamic to Mm -hmm. to the the conversation we were just having. And then, you know, even now, because I want to encourage anybody who's listening to not give up on your search. I want to encourage you to not give up on your search. And I think it's important for me to address that because when it comes to being a Black individual in therapy, we can be like, oh, I tried it and it didn't work. Like, if you think about it in the context of this, I tell people the analogy of trying shoes on. You go to the store, you see these pair of sneakers, you try them on. Uh, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Let me get a bigger size. Yeah. You try to get a size on, it's like, uh, I don't like the way this size look on my foot. Then you go down the aisle and you see a different pair of shoes. You try them on. Mm-hmm. You see if it's a good fit, right? You say, oh, you know what? This is the third sneaker I done tried on, but this one is the best fit. I'm going to get these. It's no different in therapy. You got to understand, or we have to understand that these are human beings. These are people, right? We're not going to see robots. We're not. I know they're, we're in the AI world now. So yeah. we're not, uh-huh. And it might not be a good fit. For whatever reason, take into context that what if your trauma came by way of a woman? Or what if your trauma came by way of a man? When you go into that room with that person, there may be something with a thing that's triggered that makes you feel like this is not a good fit. And that's perfectly fine. But that doesn't mean that therapy is not for you, though. Right. That just means that you need to try something else. Try another person. Try a different individual who has maybe a different expertise, whatever the case may be. So I'm going to throw that out there to also kind of add to the conversation and encourage folks to not give up on your search. For me, I didn't give up on my search. Once I moved out to Maryland, I was able to locate an older black male who's also a believer and a licensed therapist and been working in the field for like 15, 20 years. And now he's my therapist, right? So you don't give up on your search. It took me, well, I think that, that I originally got in therapy in like 2016, 2017, I want to say. And so it took from that time frame to 2023 for yeah. me to, to alignment with my the, the best therapist for me and it's perfectly fine it's a journey but you don't give up on it your healing is worth it i love that your healing is worth it yeah it's true and i've i've known people to do that where they're just like uh, I met with this person, even within, you know, racial black therapists, they're just like, I thought that getting a black therapist would be the overall blanket answer and realizing just because it's a black therapist doesn't automatically mean that they align with your needs. So right. some people, I like that you mentioned that some people already give up and be like, 
you know what, this therapy thing is not for me. I'll, I'll just be fine. I'll deal with it. Like I've always dealt with it. But when you look internally, you really aren't dealing with it. You're just masking it. But that's, that's the illusion that we give ourselves. So yeah. How, how would you break down the, the mental health and mental illness? Well, what what I will say is there are two completely different things. I think that the, the big issue behind like when we, when we talk about mental health, the reason why it's, it's so taboo is because we framed it to be that way. The reality is that mental health is simple. It's the health nature of your mind, your emotions and your behaviors. Just like your physical health is the health nature of your physical being, your body, your mm-hmm. organs, your bones, your ligaments. That's your physical health. Your mental health is the health nature of your mind, your emotions, and your behaviors. Simple. Mm -hmm. All humans have it. All humans have mental health because all of us have a mind. We have thoughts. We have thought processes. We have a mentality, a mindset. We have ideas. We have beliefs. All of us have emotions. We have feelings and happiness and sadness and anger and and confusion. Okay, so that's a part of our mental health. And all of us have behaviors. We have different ways that we respond and react to certain things, choices and decisions that we make. That's all a part of our behavioral aspect of our mental health. There's no way for us to say, oh, I don't have mental health. To say I don't have mental health is to say I'm not human. It differs from mental illness. Mental illness is the health status of your mind, emotions, and behaviors. And and here's what I also want to kind of plug in here, because I think that mental illness has been so demonized Mm -hmm. and it's been so ostracized and given this negative connotation for centuries and centuries and centuries on end. When we talk about mental illness, I think it got such a bad reputation because in the earlier years of it being attended to, the doctors didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't know how to treat it. Correct. And because they had a lack of knowledge for how to treat it, they made it taboo. Mm-hmm. They made it a big deal. They made it an issue because they were inadequate in treating it. Mm-hmm. If we actually look at the, some of the first treatments of mental illness in um, the world, there was um, a common method that they used called trepanation. And that's when they would drill holes into the, into the skulls of individuals as a way to release them from the spirits. You lie. <laughs> I'm so serious. Look it up. I, pro- I kid you not. That is when the treatment of mental illnesses, like that was the first, one of the first methods was to drill a hole into the skull of the individual to release them of what they considered to be spirits because doctors didn't have the adequate education and knowledge to treat it. And so because they were failing at it, they pushed it on it being a spirit. And so they drilled holes into the heads of people to try to release them of the spirits that were causing them to behave in certain ways when it was really an aspect of their mental of a mental illness that they just didn't know how to treat. So when we think about it in all the context, considering all these factors, that is why most people to this day still have these stigmas about mental health because of the history behind it and even its Correct. treatment. That's why I think it has a bad reputation from hist- from historical standpoint. Where we're at today, in my opinion, it's not a spirit, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, in my opinion, depression and anxiety, you know, I, I've never learned it to be a spirit. I think that it's been kind of given that demonization on end. But I think that if we start to look at mental illness as a sickness, we'll frame it as something that can be healed. And for me, we should not treat mental illness any different than diabetes, any different than cancer, any different than a common cold. You know, mm-hmm. it's literally a part of your being that is out of alignment for whatever reason. And it has the ability to be treated and to be healed. Ooh, like, 
that has so many layers because I'm thinking, like you said, I'm not knocking medicine, right? And what is needed. Because when I'm thinking about mental illness, I'm going as far as schizophrenia, bipolar. We know there are certain dangers um, when it comes to that. But because some... (laughs) Some people would look at that and be like, how is that curable? Like, mm-hmm. if you look at a person who's bipo- bipolar or a schizophrenic, that's that's their fate. Like, just mm-hmm. let them be, put them in a psych ward, pump them with medications. You know what I mean? Because you you we see it, like you said, that it's looked upon as this can't be anything else but demonic because of the behaviors that come from these diseases. But at the same time, if we don't demonize how people behave as alcoholics, how people behave as drug addicts. Why would we then not? And we know that this person can be helped because there is a source or a root of these behaviors and addictions. So why don't we look at the root and the source of these diseases that we categorize as mental illness? I I love that you say that. It actually makes me sad because it makes me think of all those people that till this day, although we're getting educated a little bit more, we're still really unaware and we stigmatize people. And it's just like... Like we don't take the time to want to learn. Like mm. you said, it's easier just to mask it because it takes too much effort or we deem it as too much effort to really understand the root cause of these issues. And like you said, with the doctors, because they couldn't, they went as far as let's drill holes and release these spirits. I think that's why us as a black community for so long, you heard it. I don't need to go to no therapy. I ain't no nut. I ain't no cuckoo bird. You know, I ain't crazy because anything that heard had the word mental in it, we seen it as, uh, uh-uh, I'm not crazy. And I don't even want to be categorized as crazy because I know what happens to my people when we're yeah. categorized as crazy. So yeah. with that said, I'm not even going to address the issue of sharing my emotions because again, within our community, our emotions are used against us. Our vulnerability is used against us. We never seem to have a safe space. That idea of a space not being safe, we've now brought it into our homes. Okay, we don't feel safe out there in the world, but are you saying I can't even feel safe in my home? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's it's a long lineage of of trauma and how this society or this world has taught us as people of color how to deal with our emotions. So man, everything you just said is just it's just it's deep. It's really yeah. deep. I definitely there's layers and layers for days, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the unfortunate part about it is as far as black and brown individuals in this country of America, you know, specifically, because I want to be fair to us. And to be fair to us. I want to say that I understand, not just from the knowledge and the context of it, but I understand from experience, you know, experience of being a Black male in this country, Mm -hmm. that expressing our feelings and emotions means something completely different than our white neighbors. It means something completely different. When it comes to the struggle that we have, because I'm gonna I, I want to talk to my brothers real quick. When we talk about the struggle that black men have with expressing their feelings, we are the last ones that were given permission to express our feelings. Throughout the course of history, we have been the last ones to be given the carpet laid down 
for us to actually talk about our feelings. That didn't start happening. Mm -hmm. This is like a conversation that's been started happening, like that's been more prevalent, I'll say, since maybe like 2010, 2015. Yeah. Mm -hmm. More prevalent around then. And even at that point, it was the very early stages of it even being a consideration. At that point, with Black men becoming therapists and psychologists, it not not Black men being in treatment, that started with like the Black men who were becoming the professionals to talk to Black men about getting in treatment. So that was when the conversation first started. So it's a very new conversation. But up until that point, when we think about mental health, therapy and psychology was a white man and a white woman's domain. To be clear about it. And then over the course of time, I think that Black women were accepted in that space sooner Mm -hmm. because of women. Like Mm -hmm. women were always kind of given the space to express emotions more than men. So I think that that's why Black women were given the space sooner than Black men. So I I, I definitely want to, you know, be fair to Black men that we did get the space last <laughs> you know we got the space last so it's gonna I, I sympathize with us because you know it's gonna take a lot more for the masses of black men to mm-hmm. to really commit and understand the importance of talking about feelings it's fair but I, I don't take away from the importance of it with that how has your experience been uh tapping mm-hmm. into your personal identity how has that shaped how you provide therapy I teach emotions first. I start there. We don't go into the session until I know how you're feeling in the moment. So my first question is, how are you feeling today? In this very moment, how are you feeling? And most of the Black men or boys that I work with, because I also work with young Black boys as well. Oh, I'm good. Good is how you're doing. Sir, I asked you how you're feeling. (laughs) Mm, That's a good point. Good is not a feeling. That on any emotional chart, you'll never see good there. That may be how you're doing, but how are you feeling? For those who can't call up a feeling, I have a whole chart. I share my screen because I see all my clients virtually. I share my screen and I say, hey, take as much time as you need. Look at this chart. Once you read through it, whatever one matches how you're feeling in the moment, we're going to go with that one. But I'm teaching them how to put the words to how they're feeling in that present moment to build up their emotional vocabulary mm-hmm. so they can talk to more people about how they're actually feeling. I don't want to, you're doing, if you're doing good, I love to hear that. But how are you feeling? We yeah. start there. Um, and I teach them just about their emotional vocabulary. I help them build it up because it has to be more than just, I get that you're feeling happy, but why? I get that you're feeling sad, but why? Why are you feeling angry? What are the what are, what are the emotions under that anger? What is it that's contributing to your happiness? What is it that's contributing to your sadness? What is it that's contributing to your stress or your confusion or whatever the case may be, your excitement? So forth and so on. So I, you know, really have those conversations with them. And then from there, you know, we get to the reasons why they come to therapy in the first place. But all the way, all up in there, I somehow weave in conversations about who they are as a black man, their identity, because I want to know what aspect of the black male identity you identify with. Okay. I want to know because it's possible that the triggers that you have, it's possible that the the struggles that you're having or the difficulties that you're having mentally and emotionally could be connected to the aspect of the black male identity that you're connecting to or that you have as a lens or a frame. If you see yourself as um, the black man that society tells you you are, thug, uneducated, inferior, inferior, dehumanized. If you see yourself through that lens, I understand why you're depressed. Mm -hmm. I understand why you're anxious because you see yourself through a lens that is unnatural to your being. For real. Yes. 
you view yourself how society views you. And that's why you have these different struggles and difficulties. So we go through all of that, even with the boys, with the boys. I talked with them about it early because why Why are we waiting until they become older men who are who are then struggling to even survive in society to start having the conversations? No, I'm having conversations with your son at seven and eight, ma'am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm talking with them. I'm, I'm getting them to understand who they are behind, beyond who their teacher said they was. I'm getting them to understand who they are at the core nature of their being beyond who who they're who even their mom or dad told them that they were because look we got to talk about that yeah. sometimes the parents don't contribute to a healthy identity for their child it's sometimes true. the parent is contributing to the low self-esteem or the depression or the suicidal ideations because the kid is resulting to suicide a lot of times because they've been told that they're stupid dumb ugly worthless or whatever the case may be mm-hmm. one of the common statements that i hear in the black household that i completely despise that I hear a lot of parents say to their children, and it was even said to me, and I heard it a lot in my community, is this phrase. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it before. They'll say, if you have brains, you will be dangerous. Mm, no, I'm not familiar with that. But that, that is, is that is demeaning. Do you hear it? <laughs> yes. And I've heard so many parents say that to their children. I, I cannot stand that phrase because it tells a child that I'm not smart. I'm not intelligent. I'm actually dumb. Oh my gosh. Now that I think of it, maybe never heard it in the phrase of if you had a you know brain, you'd be dangerous. But the the idea of like, come on, come on, use your brain. Yes. Like if you would mess yes. up on something, or if you didn't get your homework right, come on, use your brain. So exactly. damn, we don't in the moment we just see it as our parents telling us to think. But if we look deeper into it, and I'm not saying this is for everybody, but I mm. can see how it can compute internally that you start to grow up and think that those moments that they told me to use my brain, I wasn't. So yeah. I was smart. I wasn't thinking. I wasn't swift enough. So because of those reasons, they had to keep instilling in me to use my brain. So maybe I need help to think. I need help to smart. It's not naturally in me. That is something. I never thought of it that way. Hear this. I heard this one time before, and I cannot remember who said it. So I apologize for not properly quoting the individual. Mm -hmm. But I heard one person say before that a parent's words becomes the child's inner voice. Why do I feel like crying? <laughs> Any parent that's watching this, I, I I implore you. Yes, you'll feel frustrated. Yes, you'll feel overwhelmed. Yes, you'll, you know, the kids might bother you sometimes and you might feel stressed or whatever the case may be. But be very careful with the words that you speak to your children because they will literally become your child's inner voice. Th- those words will frame how your child views themselves. It will frame their level of worth and value. It will frame their self-esteem. It will frame their identity. It'll even frame how they view other people. Because if this is how I view myself, then other people have to be better than me. I have to be less than. I have to be inferior. Throughout the course of their life, they will position themselves as being under people rather than seeing themselves with the fullness of their greatness within their mental and emotional health and well-being. So we're still on topic. We don't see it as, I'm not a parent, but I'm just speaking generally. We don't see it as I may be doing harm to my child's emotions because I do believe parents are also doing the best that they can because they they weren't giving the tools. They're just transferring how they were raised most of the time. Mm -hmm. And then that's what we do. 
You know what I mean? Granted, my mom always says there are certain things from her mom that she didn't like. She didn't transfer to me. And she knows that there are things that she did that I probably didn't like and I won't transfer it to my child. Right. Yeah. But foundationally, how we were parented is how we going to parent unless we're taught otherwise and given different tools. So what yeah. you're seeing right now is is very, very vital because I tell parents to individuals, if you're so concerned about learning how to love another person by learning their love languages, we Mm. must transfer that to our children to learn their love languages and learning their temperament. Just don't think, oh, this is my child. This is how I'm supposed to raise them. You can have two, three children in a home and they all need attention differently. You know what I mean? So I I love that you're saying all of this because if us and even the way you approach black men and black boys with like let me give you the language to express how you feel because i know you don't have the language so if we were to now train parents here is the language you can use with your children instead of saying and we know we don't mean harm but well some of us who knows right i I can't say the motive or intentionality of every individual but if we tell our children instead of saying like use your brain you can say, I know you're smart. I know you got this. Hey, let's work this out together. Let me help you. You know, it's yeah. like, it has to be mixed with encouragement. Cause like you said, that little word of like, use your brain or yeah. come on dummy. You're not a dummy. Like stuff like that. Really. Like you said, a, a parent's words becomes a child's inner voice. I, I don't know this kind of, blue. you know, those, those can actually become moments for relationship building between a parent and a child. Can we talk about just ask questions? Help me understand what part of what I just said you don't understand. Mm. Relationship building between the child and the parent. Yeah. You're, starting, you're then getting into maybe my child doesn't understand my instructions the way that I gave them. So I'm giving them the space, the floor and the opportunity to express why it is that they don't understand the instructions that I just gave them. Mm-hmm. Maybe this opportunity for, for me to learn how to communicate with my child a little bit differently based off of their level of understanding and how they understand. Like, mm-hmm. I think that all of those things are part of it. And this is kind of the part to where I kind of step in as uh, as coach and, and yeah. rather, rather than therapist. All adults, when you reach adulthood, we, for me, we're, we're shifting out of blaming. We, we shift, once you reach adulthood, we shift out of blaming and now you are responsible. Mm-hmm. Whatever happened throughout the course of your childhood, as much 100% valid that you feel how you feel. You know, let me start there. I want to acknowledge and validate your feelings and your response to the things that happen. But once you step into adulthood, we can't keep, because how long are we going to blame mom and blame dad and blame the grocery store clerk and, and blame the teacher and blame the principal and the coach? How long are we going to do that? Because if I let you just do that for 15 years, you'll do it for 15 years. I'll give you your space and we'll give appropriate designation of these things to that individual and we'll say we know that this stemmed from your relationship with your dad or this stemmed mm-hmm. from the lack of relationship with your mom or the absence thereof or the rejection or maybe something uh, that your grandmom said to you or your you know whatever the case may be we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll do that we'll give the proper designation of the problem to the person but once we do that we can no longer go down this lane of blaming because we already understand where this comes from yeah so once we where it comes from and we've done that work and we made that connection how is it then once we've done that we made that connection it is now your responsibility to heal it is now your responsibility to move forward mm-hmm. it is now your responsibility to unlearn anything that came along with that experience it yeah. is now your 
responsibility to do the work on your journey of healing consistently. So learn different ways of communicating. So learn different ways of thinking of yourself and how to process your emotions to develop a healthier behavioral pattern. And that same method goes for parents. I understand that you had this experience as a child with your parents and we can connect all of that to the parents whatever the case may be whether they were present or not present but they rejected you abandoned you abused you we can do all of those connections and make those connections but now that you step into the do domain of having children it is your responsibility to not reenact those things it is your responsibility to develop a healthier parental system for you between you and your children because i think sometimes the phrase of oh, I only parent this way because that's how I was parented is an excuse. And so that's why I said we have to shift out of that aspect of blaming at some point and mm -hmm. take on the responsibility. You now have children. Those are your responsibility. So it's your responsibility because when they are in their time frame of being a child from birth to 18 years old, you are cultivating them. You are developing them into being the adults that are going to then go out into society. So you got to think about what is it that you're saying to this three-year-old that may manifest and come out at 16 years old. Yep. And that may continue on and come out at 28 years old mm -hmm. as they're as they're a, a, a conduit of, in, in society now. Mm -hmm. So like, I think that we have to really take that long view on parenthood and, and what it is that we're saying, doing, how we're treating our children, how we're you know engaging with them because they literally are going to become adults in society. And mm -hmm. who is it who is it that I'm raising up to then go and be somebody else's teacher or to go and be somebody else's husband or wife or then go and be somebody else's parent? I think all of those factors are extremely important. Everything said is is just tremendous and I really appreciate you bringing those perspectives but I definitely don't want to gloss over the faith aspect so oh, yeah. I know that you are a man of faith as you mentioned earlier I want to understand like how do you intersect faith and therapy in your own life and in your practice and I say this because you know in the church culture we've been taught to pray things away um, to call depression demonic possession, like we just mentioned, to seek counsel from pastors who are not equipped most of the times to handle the burdens or the thoughts of their members. And as we mentioned before, there is a difference between mental health and mental illness. And I wonder if this is more prominent in our Black churches, seeing that already in our culture as Black people, we like to remain silent um, and we carry this in our lives every day. So we just transfer that to church culture as well. So yeah, I, I want to know how do you intersect your faith in, in God with therapy, not only in your own life, but how you even mentor other people. Because I wonder how we've now become a society, and I'm, I know I'm saying a mouthful, but how we've become a society where we steer away from God, conversations about God, religion, you know, it's just like, keep that at home. Don't bring this here in the workplace. And, you know, so I wonder also if you ever run into issues with even tapping into faith with your clients. That's a very good question. So for context purposes, I am not, though though I am not like a, I have my license as a professional counselor, but then there's like a whole separate certification that you get as a Christian counselor. Mm. And I don't have that certification, so I don't promote myself as like the a Christian counselor, mm -hmm. but there is space for faith to be a part of the conversation. If one, my client and I have the same faith mm -hmm. and two, 
if they request for it to be a part of their sessions. Okay. With the practice that I'm working with in Delaware, um, I have a few clients who, because that's all a part of like their intake, you know, they, they'll let you know what their faith is and if they want to be a part of their, their treatment or not. Mm. Um, so if we have the same faith and, you know, they want to be a part of their treatment, then we do it. So I have a couple of clients who have um, requested their faith to be a part of their sessions. And so we, you know, we incorporate it. How I incorporate it, because this is the other part where it gets very tricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a believer, you know, and the, and my client may be a believer, but let's say they believe from a different frame. These are all taken into consideration. So for me, it's about having, it's not about, because I think this is super important to say, I'm not in the position to have an argument with my client about what belief is more correct than the other. I'm your clinician first. And so the, the position I take is processing with them when it comes to their faith, that they bring it into their session for any reason, processing with them or giving them, giving them the support to process why they think what they think about their faith in whatever context it is. And then I just give you the facts that I know from the word of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I understand that you said that, but let's look at this and we'll pull it up and read it together and we'll work through it. So I, I can incorporate it that way. And that's the, that's the best way that I see incorporating it because me, I'm a text guy. What did the word say? And that's what I'm leaning on. When, when we talk about the connection between faith and therapy, it's both in. It's not either or. It's mm-hmm. prayer and getting the the, the, the coping skills. <laughs> Right. It's prayer, it's prayer and it's working with a professional to help me process through and, and and talk through the things that I had that I experienced in the earlier parts of my life. You know, so it's, it's, it's it has to be both in. And I, I personally believe that therapy and counseling was God given. That's mm-hmm. my personal belief. Why mm-hmm. do I believe that? Because I believe it's in, in Isaiah, Isaiah. It might be chapter. Oh, don't quote me on the chapter. But I believe it's in the book of Isaiah when it references I believe it was either Jesus or the Holy Spirit referencing, being referenced as the wonderful counselor. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, for to us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. To me, that was a pivotal scripture because it references Jesus as wonderful counselor. Why is that important? Because most positions that we have created and given people in church, whether it's preacher, teacher, evangelist, bishop, they are all coming from the frame of how Jesus operated in ministry while he was on earth. Talk about that. Mm -hmm. So if if Jesus is referenced as wonderful counselor and we are supposed to mimic the life of Jesus here on earth, why can't other people operate as counselor? counselor? Yes. Can we talk about that? Yes, yes, exactly. Not to cut you off, but real quick, while you're saying that, and sometimes we will still try to box in and say, well, yeah, that's what pastors are for. That's what elders are for. But if we have other scriptures, if we're sticking to scriptures, if we have other scriptures that say the body of believers there's the hand, there's the foot, there's the eyes, there's the nose, the hand cannot be the foot. So why do we not believe us as a body of believers, not with a position within the church is the only ones that are able to be of assistance right. to another person? Because yeah. if we are believers, Christ asks us to be assistance to our neighbor, to yeah. love our neighbor. The most high access, not only as we're getting divine revelation and transformation from our father, the things that we're receiving, we are also to give. 
So yeah. I love that you give that reference because it's like so many times we feel like, well, you know what? Um, leave that up to the pastor. And again, audience, we're talking about from the church culture standpoint, right? Like leave that to the pastor. But at the same time, why can't that be? And I think if we go societal or in the American culture, like you said, it goes way, way back with racism. We've never even been giving the opportunity to say that we can go to school, like you said earlier to be a psychologist, a therapist, and so forth and so forth. So there's so many dynamics that withheld us from being assistance to one another. I think that that's, it's super important to even say how I think culture of, of many sorts and society of many sorts has really jacked up what the word of God is showing us. Mm-hmm. Because if we look at how Jesus operated, I think that we have changed that through our culture mm-hmm. because when Jesus operated, his church was not a building that we attended every Sunday and neither did his disciples operate on that level. So Mm -hmm. we want to talk about how operating as a pastor, operating as a teacher, operating as an evangelist, as an apostle, as whatever the case may be, never was supposed to be confined to a building. At least I don't don't believe that it was supposed to ever be confined. I think there's a place for that. If everybody has to be at the church, how are we reaching people in the world? Yes. And the disciples operated in the world. They went out, they traveled across the world and they did what they did. Even to bring it back to just counseling, um, Proverbs eleven fourteen says that where where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety directly to the safe space that we talk about creating as therapists. The safe space, and even if people say, "Well, my therapist is," I mean, well, people say like, "Oh, my my pastor. Why can't we just leave that to pastor?" In all right, cool. That's fair game. If you think that they should be a part of your your therapeutic process, one hundred percent. But the Bible says in the multitude of council. Means that there should be many sources of it. You should have a coach. You should have a mentor. You should have your past, but you should also have a therapist. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I like that. Shut that down. That's it. <laughs> no, it's it's very very true. How has now your faith played like in your own life? Because I I checked out a lot of your um posts and on Instagram, and I see how you mention a lot that you have your down days, you have your your days of doubt and yeah. reflecting back on your childhood so but you also mentioned how much the most high has been a vital part of your healing i think that honesty integrity and truthfulness are at the forefront in order to even talk about feelings and emotions it requires you to be honest with yourself Mm -hmm. and so i've learned to be honest and i think the other part of that honesty is therapists are not perfect for human beings I didn't become a licensed therapist until I was 25, I think, 25 or 26. Okay. So I have a whole 25, 24 years of life that I experienced prior to me being exposed to the the frame of therapy. So that's a whole 24 years that I still have to acknowledge. I still got to identify things. I still have to work through and process and resolve and forgive people and ask for forgiveness and unlearn and then and then relearn new things and 
uh, you know, make have say my apologies and accept the apology. I got to do there's work. You talking about 24 years of my life before I became a therapist. That's a lot. You get what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. So for me, it's about being honest and I'm super vocal even on social media because I think sometimes therapists can be put in this position to present ourselves as perfect people perfect. Because, mm-hmm. because we're therapists. And I'm like, nah, I'm a human. I'm, bro, I'm a human. And I'm going to be honest about my humanity before I let anybody catch me up in a lie. Like, and my humanity is that I don't feel on the up and up every day, mm-hmm. but I have skills that I've been practicing that are working for me and I know what it is that I can use. And even on those days, there are certain days I don't feel like using the skills mm. like anybody else. There are certain days like I just want to sit. I just want to I just want to be. I just want to yeah. be. But I think that we don't always give room to talk to people about the, the the art of learning to just be. And not every moment you feel sad, do you need to go ahead and and oh let me meditate. Oh let me go work out. Oh let me sometimes you got to learn how to sit in it and be okay. You have to learn how to just sit in it and be. But if we're running from it all the time what happens when it becomes overwhelming and there is no running from it you don't even know how to just be i'm sorry because i see so much how in this now culture of i understand the idea of self-love i agree with it um but this culture and i know some people may think that i'm uh, attacking these rituals but the idea of like okay saging let me get rid of negative energy whatever or any other method but what i'm trying to get at is that i've seen how people has also used that to stop them from yeah. still sitting in their emotions yeah. so if it's like oh i don't like how i'm feeling negative energy let me just do the sage and it's like but are you actually sitting in what you're feeling before you go and blame someone else for for bringing negative energy into your atmosphere can you sit in where these feelings are coming from is it true that other person did they spark something in you you know even if it's something from that person but what did they trigger in you where's that trigger coming from so i think many times it's just another tool to mask what we're really feeling or another tool to not do the work you know what i mean and i get it it's scary to sit in our emotions it's scary to come face to face with them but a tool that i've learn to use and i've told my friend is that i've learned to have communication with my emotions mm-hmm. i'm gonna talk to you sadness yeah. i'm gonna talk to you anger let's mm-hmm. talk about why i'm angry let's talk about why i'm sad let's talk about why i'm triggered and also be okay with being triggered so mm-hmm. many times we want to be like oh no i'm good nothing <laughs> phases me good yeah. vibes good vibes yeah. <laughs> and i'm like y'all could good vibes it all away yeah. But it's going to show up somewhere else. Yeah. You know, yeah. so we got to learn not only, like you said, the um the the honesty, but the responsibility to for sit sure. with our emotions. It is so important for us to learn not just how to cope with the emotions, but how to manage them. How mm-hmm. am I managing my in, in the event that all of my coping skills is not working in the moment that I feel completely anger and enraged? Mm-hmm. How am I then managing this emotion? Being only on coping and coping isn't working. If I don't have a system of management mm-hmm. for how I feel, that emotion is going to take control and then dictate what it is that I do next. Mm-hmm. So when coping is not working, how is it then that I'm managing how I feel? So as we um, wrap things up, I want to do two things. 
Mm-hmm. I want to play a very short game with you, which okay. is called Before and After. I'm going to say a word. And as a child, how would you express what that word meant to you? Mm. And now today as Charles, with the work that has been done, yeah. what does that mean to you? So you ready? Yeah. Okay. The word is anger. Anger. Uh, as a child, fight. As an adult, uh, silence. Ooh, explain that. Whenever I feel angry, the first thing that I do now is I get silent. And not silent as a way of retreating or silent as a way of a defense mechanism, but I get silent to be with myself and work through the anger that I'm feeling and really kind of identify the source of it because I think it's greater than the situation that's in front of me. It's coming from somewhere. So I get silent and kind of block out all the noise and I allow myself to really just process inwardly. Oh, I like that. Okay. The word is trauma. Trauma. As a child, mm, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse gunshots fights dad not being there he was incarcerated abandonment rejection as an adult trauma i view trauma as i want to say like a vehicle for healing god god as a child traditionalism church Mm. uh, whoever my pastors at that time said he was Whoever, okay. they, whoever they said he was at that time was who you know who he was and as okay. an adult and this is in no shape where form any disrespect to the meaning of god but that's like that's big homie like that's that's my father that's my friend that is my confidant that is my my um my source that's my creator that's my mm-hmm. you know my my king like he like he is my provider my my he's a listening ear um he is the one who who i think brings all of all things into alignment when life seems to be going awry um he's consistent he is faithful he's just he's kind mm-hmm. um he's a listening ear he's love you know even you know the way that i that i look at god as an adult is that he's all things at one time like i don't see his wrath as separate from his love if god is showing up in, in a wrathful way in my life if i feel, feel like he's like showing up um and coming down hard on me in a, in a strong way i also see that as his love for bringing me back into alignment of his will you know what i mean i don't see it as him disciplining me or trying to like beat me down but cl- clearly he's trying to get me to see something in a different perspective out of his love not because he's angry with me or wants me like wants to beat me up the last word love love as a child it was a word it was a word as an adult it is meaningful it is patient oh i mean i can go through the whole corinthians i know i know yes (laughs) it's patient and kind you know it it, it keeps no record of wrongdoing it is not grudgeful so i i I really see love as multifaceted it's dimensional it's dynamic it's powerful and it has a lot of meaning in different contexts for different people and i think that it's something to be learned in any context that you're in definitely learned definitely thank you for playing that with me i appreciate it so as we wrap up again i know that you're involved in multiple works um so can you just uh describe these organizations that you're a part of color my mind you have brown brothers and Uh, (laughs) minds in motion therapy so just can you give us a brief description of each and how you're involved in them for sure so i'm the founder and visionary of both color my mind and Brown Brothers. Color My Mind is the brand. Brown Brothers is an initiative under the brand. Um, So with Color My Mind, the whole idea is to use different forms of creativity and merge it with the field of mental health to create what we call mentally elevating experiences. 
So shout out to my to my team, my creative director, Daniel Middleton, my brand ambassadors, Nadine Bogarty, um, Kareem Abdul, and Donovan Mack. Um, those individuals, uh, they work really, really hard to, you know, bring the bring things together for the brand. Um, so that is the brand color my mind. Now, Brown Brothers is, is an initiative specifically curated uh, for Black and Brown men, a space where we um, aim to create safe spaces for Black and Brown men to come and really just talk about different um, topics that are uh, specifically important to our demographic. Um, and so we host uh, monthly what we call a virtual man cave. So it's a, um, a, a space via Zoom that we meet together for like an hour. We have a topic that we talk about and we just process through it and just chop it up for us men and just check in with each other, have a good time. And then we kind of just go on from there. But we also have the Brown Brothers Brunch, which happens every September. So we'll be looking out for that information for sure. Um, so those are the, that's the brand the initiative and then minds of emotion shout outs to good brother dr marcus mason that is actually his practice he has a private practice here um, in maryland called minds and motions therapeutics it's a team of all black male clinicians which is all unheard of clap um, clap 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 yeah, clap clap yes. for sure absolutely so shout outs to him for making that space available for us to come together as a team um and you know shout out to all the other guys on the team as well um they know who they are um and so yeah so i work with them i'm a wellness coach a mental health wellness coach for minds and motion therapeutics we work with women as well and children and okay. Families and sort couples, all of that. So, if you're interested in a black male clinician, I recommend you reach out to Minds and Motions Therapeutics, and we got you for sure. Awesome, awesome. So, what are the ways that my audience can find you and continue to tune into your work? The brand. Um, so, I'll start off with the brand social medias. So, Color My Minds Instagram is at Color My Mind Co, and that's spelled C O L O U R M Y M I N D C O. And then Brown Brothers Instagram is at brownbrothers.cmm. And then we also have our website, www.colormymind.co, which is spelled the same way that I just spelled it for the Instagram page. And then my personal Instagram is at madeprodigy underscore. That's M-A-D-E-P-R-O-D-I-G-Y underscore. Awesome. Thank you again. I mean, there's so much more <laughs> other stuff. Cause like you said, even when we had a pre-conversation, we knew that this is so multi-layered that it can't be discussed in one episode. It needs to be a series or whatever, but it's, I'm so appreciative that we're having the conversations, igniting yeah. conversations, awareness, and that, yeah. you know, I want to draw my audience to your work and other yeah. work that is being done with black men in our community. Cause I want to applaud y'all. I want to validate y'all. It will yeah. validate y'all emotions, validate the work that you're doing towards healing, because it's not only about your own individual healing, but it's also how it transfers to your partner, to your children. Yeah. Like we just mentioned earlier. So I really want to thank you for taking the time out for being on She Discovered Podcast. No, I appreciate you 100%. And, you know, I just want to, you know, I, I appreciate the space that you create. Um, I appreciate the work that you're doing. You know, I, I thank you for just understanding the importance of Black men talking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like just, just talking, even if they don't have all of the pretty language, just just talking, you know, I think that that's extremely important that you believe in that. And I appreciate you for believing in that. And I appreciate you for making another space for us to have these types of conversations, um, because I believe that the more that we have these conversations, then we'll be able to break that mold that stands as a barrier 
If I can give a last shout out, I do want to just shout out to all of the black and brown men in the world. But I want to give a special shout out to all of the black and brown men who are positioning themselves as clinicians to welcome the space for others to feel comfortable to work with somebody that they identify with. Shout outs to all of y'all. Mm-hmm. So y'all heard Charles, all right? Y'all heard him. So thank you again, listeners, for tuning in to She Discovered Podcast. As always, I hope you have experienced your own discoveries, questions to ask yourself or even your friends and family, your own community. Please remember as you're doing work on yourselves and discovering things about yourself, you're also helping those that surround you. Please tune in next time to She Discovered Podcast. Thank you for listening into this week's episode. I hope you've gained some knowledge, insight, and clarity in this moment, creating your own inner discoveries. And most importantly, head over to at She Discovered Podcast on Instagram to interact with me and receive more tips and info relating to all topics discussed. As always, you are appreciated.